This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report with me, Norman Swan. Today, getting the balance right between training your brain and your body to prevent dementia. Australians may now be on this slippery dip to more heart attacks and strokes after decades of reduced risk. Why? And are we really living younger and longer? Or are we, despite what we see around us of older people jogging around the park and working beyond what used to be retirement age, just heading for an extended period of misery before we die? 30 years ago, when the experts began to wake up to the fact that we were living longer, there began a controversy which hasn't really gone away. Most doctors, and remember most doctors see sick people from morning till night, argued that as we got older, our extra years would be miserable with added years of crippling disability. On the other side, one researcher in particular, Jim Fries of Stanford University in California, argued for something called compressed morbidity. In other words, most of our added years would not be miserable at all, and in fact the years spent in severe disability would shrink. Well, have they, and will it last? This is the focus of Eric Stallard's research. He's co-director of the Biodemography of Aging Research Unit at Duke University in North Carolina. That was the debate as it started in 1980 when James Fries published his first paper on the topic in the New England Journal of Medicine. How time flies when you're getting older. Right, 39 years. Prior to that, Morton Kramer and Ernest Bloomberg, who were well-known in the field, wrote two key papers. Uh, Bloomberg had a paper in the Millbank Memorial Fund quarterly called The Failures of Success, and he outlined all the different bad things that'll happen if you can keep people living to the older ages. Morton Kramer had a paper he published called The Rising Pandemic of Mental Disorders and Associated Chronic Diseases and Disabilities. Both of those papers, it's fair to say, were very influential. So when James Fries published his paper, it was really a ground earth-shaking type of perspective because he essentially said what everybody else was proposing was simply not going to happen. The main message was it would be possible over the ensuing decades for many people in the population to not only live longer, but have a higher proportion of that additional longevity be in relatively good health or be lived as years where they have good physical and cognitive functioning. Eric Stallard has, since the 1980s, had access to a database of nearly 50,000 people aged over 65 who were regularly surveyed for the age at which they died and their level of disability. It allowed an actuarial analysis similar to the way insurance companies assessed future risk using a life table. So we ended up over a period of 22 years We had constant instrumentation, which was used to measure the physical and cognitive functioning of the older U.S. population using a nationally representative sample. The analytic period I focused on went from 1984 to 2004. This was a large-scale operation. And it opened the possibility of getting very precise measurements over two decades in order to answer the question as to whether Fries' hypothesis was in fact correct or was it flawed. 
we'll put aside where America sits on the life expectancy scale internationally, which has always been lower than it should be. But those were the golden days where life expectancy in the United States was going up at about three months a year, every year. It's slowed down since. We'll come back to that later. What did you find? Even though we were following what's called a cohort, it's a closed group of individuals, we did our measurements using what's commonly called a period life table approach. If you take the probability of death for a one-year period, then we say, what's the probability that a person of a given age and a given gender would survive over that time period? Or conversely, what's the probability that they would die? Those would be called death probabilities or survival probabilities, and they would refer to just that one-year period. If I took the entire array from age 65 out to 105, then that table of values would represent the mortality risks in that given calendar year. If those rates remain constant from now till the end of time, how long would somebody who was age 65 live? And then you have a supplementary, how long would somebody who was age 66 live? And so you just work your way down the, the age domain. And then we could look and see how the results across that 20-year period changed. So what happened to life expectancy at given ages before we get on to disability? In 1984, if I considered someone at age 65, their life expectancy was about 16.6, and that increased over 20 years to 18.1 years. So over two decades, people aged 65 got an extra year and a half on average, although some got a lot more. But at what cost? Was it an added 18 months of misery? Eric Stallard was able to use the same data to calculate how long people were severely disabled before they died. Severely disabled meant that you needed a carer to help you with the activities of daily living. What we found was that in 1984, the average number of years in the future that someone who was just passing their 65th birthday uh, the average number of years that they would be severely disabled was two and a half years. Now, I should add that in addition to those activities, I also include severe cognitive impairment, which is a level of reduced cognitive functioning comparable to dementia or Alzheimer's disease. So two and a half years was what we had estimated. Now, if freeze, if his hypothesis were correct, we would expect that time period to shrink. When we did that, we found that the number of years of severe disability in 2004 for the same age group was 1.8, and that was a drop of 28%. It's been thrown around that you get sick five years before you die which is more than just the severe disability. You know, you get cancer, you get heart failure, you do this, and then you're on the slippery dip. And at some point later, you go into this severe disability, and then you die. Is there any evidence for that five years before you die, if you actually look at the track of accumulated disability? What you have is an array of chronic conditions that currently are being medically treated and those conditions today would be better treated than they were earlier on so that 
the wages I've seen go up to 10 years or more. And is that and shrinking? I've seen calculations that suggest that may, in fact, be expanding. There are many people who, for example, will have a diagnosis of atherosclerosis or some form of heart disease. They may even have stents or surgical interventions. And they may be down at the track when I'm down there running around doing a mile or two or walking fast. And there's no way that those people would in any way meet the criteria that we use that says you got to need active personal assistance. And yet they might have two or three different diagnoses. So then let's talk about life expectancy then. So if you've got severe disability, what you're seeing from your data is that your life expectancy on average is a couple of years. Yeah, I'd almost reverse that and say that it's not till the last one to two years of life that you would expect people to get to the level of severity of of disability. If you reverse that and you say, okay, on average, I have someone who's going to live, say, 18 years, that means that 90% of their retirement years, in fact, will be either in good health or health where they're able to function independently. But the question that carers and families ask themselves, but often dare not express out loud, is when a loved one becomes severely disabled, how long have they got? The answer is more complex than saying it's a year or two. Eric Stallard again. What I found was if it was a physical type of disability, the survival after you meet the threshold criteria seem to be relatively unchanged. For the people who had severe cognitive impairment, the survival appeared to have dropped some substantial amount. Why would that be? The most credible explanation was that the population had increased their cognitive reserve. The population, when they were getting to the oldest ages, they had greater cognitive functioning. So when they started down the final deterioration, they had a greater drop in their capacity. So essentially they fell off a cliff. Well, they have a steeper decline. And so when you see them as passing the threshold, they've dropped further than the people in the earlier time period. And Eric Stallard believes that what's happened from 2004 through to the present day, to 2019, is that the time spent with major physical disability has probably stayed the same, while the survival with dementia at the point of severe disability has probably shortened, because these days people are older when dementia hits and may therefore have less reserve to survive it. Professor Eric Stallard is co-director of the Biodemography of Aging Research Unit at Duke University in North Carolina. This is the RN's Health Report, and I'm Norman Swan. Let's focus then on the physical side, because a study from the University of Melbourne suggests that in fact the gains in heart disease rates, which have contributed to extended lives and lower disability, have stalled and may even be going up again. Tim Adair was one of the researchers and is in our Melbourne studio. Welcome to the Health Report, Tim. Hello, Norman. What did you think of that story from Alex Stallard on compressed morbidity? Um, It is to be expected that as we live longer and as a higher proportion of deaths are from chronic diseases, that uh, there would be a longer period that uh, people would spend in some kind of disability leading uh, or before their death. Their study focused on severe disability and other work by the Global Burden of Disease, which 
places a weight, different weighting system on um, the type of disability. So a greater weight placed on more severe disabilities, a lesser weight placed on less severe disabilities. And they've found that as uh, life expectancy has increased in, in most parts of the world, especially high-income countries, that the number of years lived with a disability has increased, although proportionally it has remained um, relatively similar over time. But it's really mostly living with a diagnosis rather than disability. I mean, if you had a stent in, you're probably not dis disabled at all. It depends how, how you measure it, but um, they use, uh, the Global Burden of Disease use um, a whole range of data um, from across the world which, which measure disability in different ways um, and, and they certainly place greater weight on the more severe disability. And just to explain, your Global Burden of Disease study looks at, we've covered it many, many times in the health report, combines years lost to disability to you know, years lost of life because you die prematurely. So let's take the context for Australian heart disease in the current study. You know, we've been one of the world leaders in this. We've, I think it's 30 or 40 years. We've had a decline in death rates from heart disease of two, and heart attacks and strokes of about 2% per annum, which means 60 or 70% fewer people at a given age are dying of heart attacks and strokes. It's been a huge success story. Yes, we've found that um, certainly since the 1970s that the decline in cardiovascular disease mortality in Australia has been um, amongst the greatest in the world. Um, but more recently, uh, those declines have slowed considerably um, in Australia and many other high-income countries. And the, the declines now are, um, in Australia are under 2% per annum. Um, and if those declines keep keep slowing, as they are, we may reach a stage where they do stall in, in the near So tell future. us about the study you've done of uh, several, about 23 countries, I think it is. Yeah, we looked at 23 high-income countries and we looked at their vital statistics data and we found that in most of those countries, there has been a slowdown in decline in cardiovascular disease mortality rates, um, in, especially in the last few years. In the USA and amongst Canadian females, there has actually been an increase in the most recent year of data. And in about um, half the countries, the most recent year of data we have, the decline was less than 2%. And I, I thought I read in your paper that there's a, there's a signal in the last year or so that in Australia and Germany that we might be experiencing an uptake as well. Uh, sorry, could you just repeat the question? Uh, in your paper, but maybe I misread it, is that in Australia and Germany in 2016, 2017, there may be actually a bit of a reversal occurring here too. Uh, yes, so we, we looked at the global burden of disease data, which um, projects out a bit further than what the vital statistics data show. And we, we found that um, in about half the countries, according to the global burden of disease, um, there has actually, or they are estimating an increase in, in 2017 in the cardiovascular disease mortality rate. And what a distinction to, to make between the global burden of disease data and the vital statistics data we looked at is that the global burden of disease corrects for different um, diagnostic practices in different countries, which can vary somewhat. And so it's a more standardised so, measure. So it's a level playing field. So why is, it, why is this happening? Why are we bottoming out? I guess there are a few things to consider. Firstly, we have had significant declines in, in most high-income countries in cardiovascular disease mortality. And so one hypothesis is that, uh, that levels of, of, are now so low that they don't have all that much further to fall. Um, but we found in, in our study that there was no correlation between the most recent rate of decline and the actual level of mortality. So, so that hypothesis seems to be. So I don't uh, know what you mean. What do you mean by that? Uh, that if cardiovascular disease mortality had, had reached such a low level, say um, you know, fifty per one hundred thousand, that it it's 
the additional gains are, are much harder to achieve than what they would be would have been in, in previous years. But we didn't find a, a direct relationship between the level of cardiovascular disease mortality so and the, the so most recent so rate could, of So you could still go lower in theory. So is this because we've bottomed out in our smoking rates? I mean, because smoking probably was the biggest contributor to um, reduced heart death rates from heart disease as well as the ability to treat cholesterol, high cholesterol, high blood pressure and put in stents and that sort of thing. I mean, what's the balance here of what's contributed to the lower rates? Yeah, smoking, or well, certainly the, the declines since the 1970s, smoking is probably the, the largest behavioural risk factor um, that's contributed to those declines. And uh, one reason that we, we could hypothesise why the, those declines in Australia are slowing is because smoking levels have fallen so far and don't have much further to fall. Um, but another um, worrying behavioural risk factor trend is um, increasing levels of obesity. Um, and what we found in our study is that amongst the English-speaking countries, the declines, the recent declines in cardiovascular disease mortality have been slowest and, and have increased in USA and Canada, as I mentioned. And those English-speaking countries have amongst the highest obesity levels in the world. Our study didn't make a direct link. They're also using obesity. Facebook and, um, you know, and Instagram and watching a lot of uh, seri your drama series on Netflix. So, I mean, is it a cause and effect or an association? Well, uh, I mean, obviously, the high levels of obesity do increase long-term risk of mortality. We haven't really uh, been able to yet make a, a, a strong link at the population level uh, between high levels of obesity and uh, and increased risk of or increased rates rather of cardiovascular disease mortality. But certainly, the um, these recent trends and the fact that the English-speaking countries are experiencing the the, the greatest slowdown in cardiovascular disease mortality um, make it certainly uh, worthy of further investigation. So head for obesity as a public health issue and do something about it the way we did something about smoking. Yes, correct. Um, you know that that if we we look back at some of the um, public health initiatives related to smoking that uh, reduce smoking prevalence, they you know similar kind of. Um, uh, innovative approaches should be considered for obesity. Tim, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Norman. Tim Adair is a Principal Research Fellow at the Melbourne School of Population and Global Health at the University of Melbourne. There's pretty good evidence that in countries like Australia, the chances of developing dementia are falling. We've already mentioned that. But that still means that plenty of people will experience declines in thinking ability and memory and slip from there into dementia. But the lower dementia rates have almost happened by accident. We've benefited a side effect from these lower rates of heart disease we've been talking about. But as you heard, that may have come to an end. So how to deliberately prevent dementia on a mass scale is the challenge. And what's the balance between training the brain and having a healthy body? One solution is to deliver an online program that protects against dementia because its reach would be far greater than could be achieved face to face in a clinic or gym. A group led by researchers at the Centre for Healthy Brain Aging in Sydney is working on just that. They say it's the world's largest internet-based trial to prevent cognitive decline, and the health report's James Bullen has taken a look. We know that about a third of the risk for Alzheimer's disease and other dementias are attributable to modifiable risk factors in the environment. Things like lifestyles, what you eat and how you use your brain, how you socialise and so forth. Professor Henry Bradardi is co-director of the Centre for Healthy Brain Aging at the University of New South Wales, and he's the lead investigator of the Maintain Your Brain trial, an ambitious attempt to develop an online program that helps prevent cognitive decline. We have 6,236 people 
randomised into two groups. Both groups will be getting information about their risk factors. There are up to four modules depending on their risk factor profile. Physical exercise or physical activity, nutrition, brain training and depression or anxiety treatment. As we get older, our cognitive ability typically starts to worsen. That's a fact of life and having cognitive decline doesn't mean you have dementia or will ever get dementia. But the two are linked and many of us have lifestyle factors we can tweak to influence our risk. In fact, over 90% of people were eligible to do at least one or two modules. And the nutrition module, astounding 98% of people were eligible for that. That eligibility was based on an assessment of a person's individual risk factors, like how fit they were or how well they ate. And there is some evidence that these multimodal interventions, programs that target multiple different lifestyle factors, can help to protect the brain. This is in people who don't have dementia at the start of a study. That's the group the Maintain Your Brain research is looking at. The landmark research study was from Finland, looking at exercise, brain training, and attention particularly to cardiovascular risk factors. And they showed over two years actually an improvement in cognition in several domains in the intervention group versus the control group. One of the modules that people complete in Maintain Your Brain is brain training. Repetitive cognitive tasks where there's an inherent challenge or problem there. And you're doing it over and over again to build up the underlying skills the task is targeting. The brain training module is led by Professor Michael Valenzuela at the University of Sydney. So it's very much analogous to physical activity versus physical exercise. So when you go to the gym and do exercise, you're doing repetitive movements with your muscles. In the brain training context, you're doing repetitive exercises for your brain. It's been a hot area of research over the last five years. There's now more than 50 clinical trials. So from that body of evidence, we now understand that when brain training is done rigorously or properly, that there is a benefit to general cognition and more specifically to certain types of cognitive abilities more than others. Part of what makes a brain training program rigorous is when it works multiple functions of the brain, things like visual, verbal and working memory. If we want to improve fitness, if you only had barbells and you're only exercising your biceps, not likely to improve your overall physical fitness. Another aspect of what makes a brain training program rigorous is supervision. If you'd never been in the gym before and I just gave you the pass and said go in there and get fitter, you might not succeed. The same applies to brain training, that if we leave it to individuals just to do whatever they like or to devise their own program, it doesn't seem to be effective. But when it's structured and led by a brain coach, then it is effective, and that's been shown in over 50 clinical trials. So in Maintain Your Brain, we really had to face that very stark challenge, which is that the literature is saying you really need coaches and support to make this work. But in Maintain Your Brain, we're trying to deliver this to thousands and thousands of people. Our workaround is we do have real human trainers, a whole team of them, who we deploy to the people we think need it the most. So in our technology, there's a lot of algorithms there to try and detect when people are struggling with an exercise or a period of exercise. And that's when they get red flagged on our system and that's where our trainers make contact on a variety of platforms, either over the phone or through messaging and so forth. 
how you deploy that human resource, that human training resource, is very important and it's maybe not what we first anticipated. What appears to be clear is that as soon as you, you start these large online trials, people tend to come in three different flavours. There's a group that very highly motivated and basically do everything that's asked of them. So they may struggle, but they will self-correct and keep going. Then there's a group that start the training and then almost no matter how much trainer engagement we provide, don't progress for whatever reasons, they're very brittle to any challenge that comes up, either on the content or from a technology point of view. For whatever reason, they'll, they'll start, but no matter what support you give them, they will not progress. Providing trainer resources to those individuals doesn't pay off. And then you've got this group in the middle, and that's where we've learnt now that the training resources have to go on. They, they do want to progress, but they need support. We need to target our trainer resources, not to the top and not to the very bottom, but that middle group that needs that encouragement and advice in order to progress. The exercise, nutrition and depression modules of Maintain Your Brain also provide online supervision. And the hope is that preserving cognitive ability translates to better function in daily life. That's difficult to show in scientific research, though. From a technical point of view, it's very challenging to demonstrate because those type of measures and and ways of quantifying daily function are very coarse. So you really need to either be dropping massive levels of functionality to see a decline or being improving by a really large amount in order to be able to detect it. So it's a difficult thing to get evidence for, but in some very large studies there is now some evidence that this type of training can generalise to that high level. But I think we still need more data to really confirm that. Dr Alex Baha-Fuchs researches brain training in dementia at the University of Melbourne. He isn't involved in the Maintain Your Brain trial. We have pretty conclusive evidence that some training does work in this regard. However, this does not necessarily mean that people who train under this kind of approach will necessarily show lower rates of decline in the future because most of these studies tend to focus on the short to medium term. It's very, very difficult and there are very, very few studies that have been both large in terms of the number of participants and uh, followed people for long enough to tell us whether or not that changes the trajectory. It's also not clear how brain training stacks up against the other risk factors maintain your brain is trying to tweak, exercise, nutrition and depression. At the level of the individual, it's difficult to predict which approach or combination of approaches is likely to have the best benefit. So that's why we generally recommend to engage in as many of these brain resilience type of activities as possible in combination. The trial won't report full results for a few more years. It's ongoing and we don't know whether it's going to work or not. It's also important to say that reducing risk isn't the same as eliminating it. Lifestyle's just one factor that contributes to whether someone may get dementia or not. You can do all the right things and still develop the condition. But if the program does work... If the trial behaves like other research in in the field, then we would expect those people that have been undergoing our training modules to have at least maintained their cognitive skills over the three-year period. 
and those that don't, we may see a level of decline. So that, that's our hypothesis and our forecast. We're very hopeful that we can show that there is a benefit from this. We'll then be able to then roll it out at a national level, international level. Professor Henry Brodati, who's director of the Centre for Healthy Brain Aging at the University of New South Wales, and he ended that report from James Bullen. And across the ABC Science Unit this week, we're asking how can we stay younger for longer? Head to abc.net.au slash scienceweek for a showcase of all our content, including a two-part special on Catalyst airing this week and next. Details on the website. I'm Norman Swan. This has been The Health Report. See you next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.